Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to open God's Word now. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 to 27, going through a series on Deuteronomy, but our Bible reading today is from Exodus. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you prefer to read along on the screen, it'll be on the screen behind me. Exodus 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. Thanks, Rosie. um, There was just one more announcement that we missed, and that is today, uh, like we've done uh, last year, was... We're going to be selling some Christmas cards out over morning tea uh, in that cube. That's the cube area in there. It's to raise money for an organisation called Bloom who help women uh, be able to escape the sex industry, basically. Uh, And this area of Bloom work in the uh, southeast um, area of Asia. Now, this is particularly important that in this season because apparently through COVID, a lot of industries and work opportunities have shut down and ceased for these women. And so the only way to actually earn an income is to resort to that sort of industry where they get abused uh, and mistreated. So this organisation is really important. Uh, it's really important for us to support people who are struggling in life. Um, so if you want to buy a Christmas card, please do, supporting that organisation, but also have, feel free to make a donation to there as well. So Tanya will be in that room, talk to her. Uh, That'll be set up in the cube. Let me pray and then we'll look a bit deeper into this passage. Dear Father God, Lord, as we sit here this morning, we do pray that you would speak to us, that you would show yourself to us, that you would help us to understand more about who you are and to draw near to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you didn't notice, we've got some tables set up here up the front where we're going to do, after the service, a thing called the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is one of those strange things that churches do because churches do some strange things, I confess. But this is one of the strangest. It's where we grab a cup, a small cup, a little shot glass, and fill it with juice. We talk about blood. And then we grab a small bit of bread, or in this case... Because of COVID, we have these COVID-safe ones with a little wafer on top, and we call it uh, the body of Christ, and then we call it a meal or a supper. It's the last supper. Now, I've got a feel that it's underselling a little bit. It's a bit underdone, because when I think of a meal and some of the traditions we have in celebrating things, it's a bit, you barely call it entree, really, or for me at least, because at Christmas time, Surely that's a Christian celebration. You know, there's ham, there's turkey, there's all sorts of seafood. You don't go home unless you're full. There's plenty of food. For uh, other celebrations, Anzac Day, we have plenty of lamb. Birthday parties, it's compulsory. You've got to have a bit of cake. There's abundance and there's lots of it. But yet we'll sit here later on holding up our little cups and say this is 
the Lord's Supper. Some churches even get the priest to walk around it, waving some bells and smells and say, no, no, this truly is, this is the body of Christ. It literally is Jesus' body. This is literally the blood of Jesus. We don't do that. It's a bit mystical. But we do uh, celebrate it in a simple cup, in a simple bit of bread. And it's one of those traditions that have been going on for hundreds and thousands of years that we'll see later. But it's one of those things you go, what is it all about? Is it all about this church just maintaining just some traditions the church has been doing for a long time? Is it about um, connecting us with the ancient world that we just keep doing what we do? What's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with me sitting here now? How's it going to change my life? Why would I do it? Why do we do it as a church? This is a question we're going to get into this morning. As Rosie said, we've been working through a series in Deuteronomy. This is just a little break, a little window. Uh, Ben's going to be finishing that off next week. But it's a little break, just get us back in the time, since we've sort of got the time frame, Deuteronomy, it's Old Testament. There's things going on there where God is saving his people from Egypt, but he's bringing them into the promised land. He's fulfilling the promises and the challenges that that will be for God's people. So we're going to go back to that part of history around the time of Deuteronomy, even back a little bit further when God's people Israel were in Egypt. So to pick up a bit of what's going on, we need to get our foundations right. This is now 3,300 years ago, it's historical, to why we're doing it now. And it's all about the lamb. Now you've got to realise, we've sung a lot about the lamb this morning and if you've kind of wondered what is this about we've already been singing about it but this is the background to it why we do it it's all about the lamb how the lamb saves and this is a a passage from israel that's god's people they're in egypt and under pharaoh so this is the time of the pharaohs this is 1300 bc uh the pharaoh is a king in fact he's more than a king the pharaohs of egypt thought they were divine that they were gods they ruled everything. Now, for God's people, Israel, they'd settled in Egypt for safety, for, for food and shelter and things like that. But the Pharaoh decided to take them in as slaves. So now, for God's people, they're in slavery. In fact, the Pharaoh is treating them very badly. Uh, he's abusing them. He's making them work very harshly in the stories about them. Um, yeah, how, how the slave drivers were treating them. In fact, the Pharaoh wanted to dominate so much, there was at one stage where he ordered all the newborn boys to be killed. Like, that's Pharaoh. He's got his gods. In fact, he thinks he's a god. The Israelites and their god don't matter. And I'm going to oppress them as much as I can. But in that setting, you've got God is another character in the story. Now, God's been talking the big game up to now. If you follow the story through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God's been promising, you are my people, my dearly loved chosen people to these people now known as Israel. I will make you a great nation. I will give you land. I'll take you into a promised land. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to other nations. They're big promises. God's talking a big game. But right now, in that moment in time, it's Israel. And they're like, we're not seeing it. In fact, we're more abused, we're more taken advantage of than any other group of people that we can see. They're getting the rough end. 
But God sends a message out through Moses. Moses is God's man who uh, he speaks to. Moses comes up, says, no, God has a plan. He's going to teach Pharaoh a lesson. He's going to send some plagues, 10 plagues. The first nine plagues, he's probably not going to listen to. In fact, he knows he's not going to listen to. The 10th plague, you might say, is the killer. Um, it's the one where he says, I'm going to curse this place, this, this city of Egypt, and I'm going to kill every eldest child. He's going to get the Pharaoh's attention. But in fact, this curse is going to go over all people in Egypt. This is where we pick up the story where Moses is explaining it to the people. So it's Exodus chapter 12. It says, what you need to do is you need to get together. You need to get a lamb. It's all about the lamb. You need to get a lamb. You need to gather in households. So you need to be together. This is not for individuals. This is my personal faith. No, no. It's our household faith. And if there's somebody else missing out, bring them into your household. We do this together. And then he, he outlines what they are to do. Take care of the lamb until the 14th month to this specific day where I'm telling you when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter the lamb at twilight. The lamb's got to go. Then they are to take some of the blood because it's not just... Um, you know, blood something, you usually drain off, put it down the drains. No, no, keep every bit of this lamb matters. Keep the blood, put it on the tops of your doorposts, the door frames, put it all around the doors and then cook the lamb up and have the feast that night with all those people in the household and you all must participate. You all must eat some of the lamb. There's got to be enough to go around because that's a sign that you're trusting in the lamb. That's the instructions that he's laying out. There's the lamb... And I'm not sure what you think of when you think of the lamb and why it has to be killed. Lambs are, you know, white, fluffy. Lambs are usually happy. They're sort of bouncing around the paddock. They've got a sense of innocence about them. They're discovering the world for the first time. They're not corrupt. But take the blood of this innocent lamb because that blood will save your household. That's important. And you need to do it with others. You are the people of God and you must participate by eating the lamb to recognise that it died not in vain or not to waste but to give you life and I'm feeding on it. I can see the benefits of it. I'm participating in it. Now, you've got to ask the question, why would God do this? It sounds a little bit, wow, that's extreme. Why would God do this? Now, sticking in chapter 12 of Exodus, he outlines why God is is going to be doing this. On that same night, the night that he's already told him, I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So I'm the Lord. I'm the one they should be worshipping, but I'm the one Egypt is ignoring, Pharaoh's ignoring. But then you've got to ask, why isn't God just disciplining the Egyptians? And leave the Israelites out of it. Why is he this blanket? I'm going to cast judgment over everybody with this for the way they've treated me. Well, it's actually, if you're an Israelite living in Egypt and you've been doing so for hundreds of years now in slavery, you've kind of, kind of got used to the idea there's other gods. Kind of got used to the idea we can pray to other gods. Kind of got used to the idea it's okay to have an idol. You know, hedge your bets. You don't have to have one god. You can have multiple gods. In fact, you can have a shrine of gods. Israel's gone down that path. Now, this is still in slavery. 
Ben's been walking us through Egypt when they're in the desert about to enter the promised land. But if you go into even further, you get this guy Joshua who leads them into the promised land. And what does he say to the Israelites? He says, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped, both beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Why is he saying that? They're still carrying around their idols. They had them in Egypt, even through the teaching of Moses. They've stuck them in the back pocket, hoping nobody's going to say. They've reinvented them, possibly. Even through the desert, as soon as they left Egypt, they were building a golden calf, their own idol. They're not 100% committed to God. No, no, they've got issues themselves. So when God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the gods and anybody who follows them, worships them, prays to them, Israelites are a bit nervous now, aren't they? Oh, I follow Yahweh, this, this God, but yet I know I've been praying to the other gods. I've got a shrine in the back room. And now God's going to cast judgment on anybody who's followed other gods? But God continues. He says, I'm going to cast judgment. But if you've got this blood sprinkled around your door, the blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when you see the blood, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood of the lamb on the door pillar is important. And what it does is saying, I'm going to punish you. The eldest child will die. And I'm not sure how you feel about this if you're an eldest child. It's like, man, how come I take the heat for the whole family? But no, no, God's saying the eldest child will die. Unless this innocent lamb, the lamb you've looked after, cared for, um, probably named it, kids have named it, Sean the sheep. No, he's cute, he's cuddly. No, no. This innocent lamb, if it dies the death, it will die the death in your place. That's big. That's big. The people will be saved by the blood of the lamb. Now for this, God's uh, making more promises, a covenant you might say. Ben's been using this covenant language this last few few weeks. It's a promise in relationship. It's not a, if you do this, I'll do this. It's no, no, in a relationship, I promise I'm going to do this for you. And in this covenant, he promises that he will save them. In fact, if you're a bit nervous sitting as an Israelite, knowing you've got your idols out the back going, I'm going to trust the blood of a lamb for my life or my son's life or my daughter's life? Can I do that? In fact, God doesn't have any doubts. He's so confident in this same chapter 12 when he's laying out, this is what's going to happen, but this is how I'm going to show grace to you. With the blood of the lamb, I will pass over your house and your household will be safe. He's so confident this is going to happen. He starts talking about how they're going to celebrate after it happens. Obey these instructions and lasting ordinance for your descendants. So after this happens, it hasn't happened yet. They haven't killed their lamb yet. The night hasn't gone past where the angel of death passed over. It hasn't happened yet. But already he's going, hey, it's going to happen. And this is what I want you to do afterwards. I want you to celebrate it. I want you to promise to observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? So every year they're going to have a Passover festival. What does it mean? Tell them this is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt and, spread our, uh, and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians 
Then all the people bow down and worship. How good is God that he would spare us, even though we've done the wrong thing? We haven't been faithful to God, but he spared us. He gave us a way out, thanks to the lamb, thanks to the blood that innocent lamb shed. And this, fe- this festival ended up being the Jews, or the Israelites, turned it into a month-long festival. This is worth celebrating, right? God is so good to us that he would save us. So they turned it into a decent festival, as in a long time, lots of feasts, lots of ceremonies, lots of ways to remember God saved us by the blood of the Lamb. That's what they did every year. Good years, bad years, they would remember God's grace upon them. Continued. Now everything happened how God said it would. The plagues come through, Pharaoh didn't listen. The plague of death come through, Pharaoh relented, sent the people out. They got saved, went into the promised land. For 1,300 years, they'd been practicing this Passover festival, remembering God's love and his grace on them. Until we get to the point, 1,300 years later, so now we're um, 20 AD, time of Jesus. But we meet John the Baptist first. John the Baptist was a guy, he's uh, what's called a prophet, so he spoke the words of God and he was a bit of a strange prophet because he hung out in the desert, he didn't go looking for crowds, in fact crowds come to him because they could tell, hey this guy, this guy is speaking the word of God, so they wanted to hang out, they wanted to hear his teaching and then one day he sees someone coming towards him and he says, actually we can show you what he says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the next day, John was there again with his two disciples and he saw Jesus passing by. He says, look, the Lamb of God. It's like every time he sees Jesus, he's telling people, look, the Lamb of God. Now, I know that it's not unusual to call people names, particularly call people animals. Like, you dog. It's like, you're mean and nasty. Or, you're a wolf. You're a wolf in sheep's clothing. I don't trust you. You're a snake. You're deceptive. But when you say, you're a lamb, I'm not sure what you think of. I'm pretty sure people aren't thinking, oh, John thinks he's kind of cute. He's kind of bouncing around, just exploring the world. You know, he's not white and fluffy. He's a lamb. I'm sure they're not thinking that. Because in that culture, the lamb means one thing, sacrifice he's saying you're a dead man you're a dead man walking you will be the sacrifice in fact he says the sacrifice that covers the sins of the world not just the household the world how would you like to be known by that whenever any time somebody sees you you're going to be sacrificed you're the dead man walking the idea that Jesus would be the sacrifice. I mean, if you've grown up with this story, you go, yeah, I know where this is going. But you've got to appreciate at that time, in that time in history, to hear that said is like, I get lambs are sacrifice. Lambs make us right with God. But to sacrifice a person, that's like taking it a whole other level. And a sacrifice, what seems to be the son of God, that's like a whole new level. whole new level that John the Baptist is talking about. But as these events turn out, this is exactly what God wants us to see. Don't be mistaken. So what happens 
as uh, when the right time came, Jesus had about three years of ministry. Uh, well, all the Gospels talk about this one night, this one special night, whether Jesus sat down with his disciples. We'll pick it up in Matthew 26, just the same one passage. Matthew 26, where we're explicitly told it is the time of the Passover. Be no, no mistake. It is the time that all the Jews, all the Israelites have come into Jerusalem to celebrate this month-long feast. It is the Passover. And it's stressed, you know, where do you want us to eat the Passover? The teacher said, um, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. He's telling this stranger. It's like, we're going to do it with the people around us, just like the, past, the original Passover. Jesus is going to uh, be there. But then he goes on. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he basically said grace, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Now, what's unusual about this Passover meal, you've got to ask the question, where's the lamb? We haven't seen the lamb slaughtered yet. We haven't roasted the lamb. We're not feasting on the lamb. In fact, the words that you would have is uh, when you pulled apart the lamb and everybody's got to participate, that you would give every person a piece of lamb and go, eat this. This is the body of the lamb. You're a part of it. You're, you, you're saved by the blood of the lamb. But Jesus doesn't break the lamb up and hand it out. He breaks the bread and hands it out and says, this is, um, this is my body not the lamb's body, my body. And then he took the cup and when he'd given thanks, again he prayed, uh, and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant. And the other gospel writers says this is the blood of the new covenant, the new promises of God, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's not the blood of the lamb, the literal lamb, that's going to save a household anymore. Jesus is saying, I'm, my body's broken or going to be broken. My blood's going to be poured out, but it's going to be covering the sins, not of one household, not of this household, but of the sins of the world for all those who come to him. Like, how much more explicit do you need that Jesus is saying, I am the lamb. It's not about the little lamb, Sean the sheep. It's not about him. In fact, that was teaching you about me. But asked to go into this world to be about our day-to-day -day lives and just forget about God. But yet even for us to point back over and over again the victory that Jesus has won for us. He has won the victory. So we're not just meandering about aimlessly. He has got a plan for us. He has he's taking us. The promised land is not here and now. The promised land is heaven. That's why, again, the Apostle John writes in Revelation, he gives us this bit of a picture. He uses this language, and I want you to feel the weight of how weird it is at first, but how meaningful it is second. Revelation 19, he's talking about what it's going to be like in heaven. And he says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, that's a bit strange, right? A bride marrying a lamb. But with what we've been working through, it's Jesus. Jesus is coming together, being fully united. The bride there is talking about, which fills it out in other verses, is the church, his people. His people are going to be with him permanently, united like a marriage. 
But then he goes on in verse 9, and the angel said to me, he's talking about another feast, this is why I want to put this verse up, uh, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the, wor- the true words of God. There's a wedding banquet, another meal that we're going to celebrate. This is what Jesus has done for us. The victory has won. We might be sitting here having doubts, being a little bit shaken by the world. But to God, he's like, no, it's as good as done. It's going to happen. In fact, even now within your troubles, I'm going to tell you how to celebrate it in the future. Because I know, I'm certain it's going to come through this covenant with you. I, will, I have given you victory through Jesus and I will take you home to be with him for eternity in paradise. We have the victory through the Lamb of Jesus. Great image. Now, what do we do with that in the here and now? It's a bit of a story, and how do we fit into the story? Going back all those years, back to Egypt, God showed his love, mercy. He saves them through the Lamb. Through Jesus, he saves not only people then, but saves us even now. And we're on our journey to victory in eternity in heaven. What do we do with that sitting here this morning? There's three things we do when we participate in the Lord's Supper. This is a simple way of putting it. That we look back, that we reflect on now, and we look forward. So when we look back, and this is what we're going to be doing after the service, uh, after the talk, when we look back, we remember who we are because of God's love for us. We're nobody. We can't justify ourselves we can't save ourselves can't be religious enough good enough but if we look back on the grace of god the mercy of god that he would send his son jesus to die for us we know we need a lamb romans 5 verses 5 uh, 6 to 8 fill this out a little bit you see just at the right time when you are still powerless Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to be reminded of that constantly. We don't deserve, God owes us nothing. We don't deserve any good thing from him. But out of his grace and mercy, he says, even though you're a sinner, you're a rat bag. I know you don't trust me fully. I, don't, I know you don't obey me. But out of my love for you, my son will lay down his life for a sinner, for someone ungodly. We need to feel the weight, looking back at God's amazing act of love. It was an interesting exercise. Just recently, uh, we've been talking about how the, this church building operates and realised for a long time we haven't had a fire drill in this church. And we thought maybe this is a good thing to do because we need to practice. If a fire was to break out right now in the service, if the place filled up full of smoke quickly and if you could hear the flames roaring through the walls and stuff, what do we do? Now, in theory, I'm going to tell you, we would run out that door and we would trust the kids in each of their rooms would run out their doors or go down the stairs, run out their doors. We're trusting the chief teachers to organise them. But I reckon in a drill, I reckon in a drill we could possibly do that. This is what's going to happen out there. But I reckon if we had a fire going on, this room was filling up with smoke fast, the alarms are going off, you can hear the flames coming, and we were to- instructed you just go out that door and stand in the car park and wait and we'll count people and gather... 
I suspect that's going to go wrong because our kids are in those rooms. If we had a fire and it looked like there's a good chance somebody's going to die here, where are you going to run if you're a parent? Are you going to run out there, save yourself? You're going to be pushing other people out of your road. I want to see if my kid's okay. In fact, I want to grab my kid and take them out myself. My kid is the most precious thing to me. I want to save my child at all costs. And not that we don't love each other, and my kids are growing up now, but if my granddaughter's up in the creche room upstairs, I'd be possibly pushing you guys out of the road to go up and to make sure my granddaughter's okay. Because our child is so precious to us. But yet, what does Jesus do? In the example of a fire, and I know all the illustrations break down at some point, Jesus is not like, no, go and save yourself. He's like, Jesus, God's son, comes into the fire and saves us, even if it means he gives up his own life, even if it does mean he gives up his own life. It's like, you are so precious to him. You are the one he's coming in for. You are the one he's willing to lay down his life for. I don't know whether I'd do that, to be honest, in that scenario. He does it. So great is his love for you. We need to remember, we need to look back and go, that action on the cross was so amazing. He didn't have to do it, but he did it for me, a sinner, the ungodly. So we look back. And now, what do we do now? In uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about how we do the Lord's Supper, and that's where we get sort of instructions on how we do this. It talks about examine yourself. So how are you going with this? Not just remember, hey, the good old days when God saved us 2,000 years ago. It's how are you going with that now? Are you still carrying your idols in your back pocket? Are you still praying to other gods, hedging your bets? Are you still hoping karma will come through you? Oh, if I'm good enough, it'll all work out. How are you going with that? Examining yourself. What the Jews used to do in their Passover festivals would go through a series of ceremonial cleansing. Uh, so they would do these rituals where they'd physically wash themselves to symbolise a cleanliness of the heart. Now, we're not going to do that, but it, there is something in that, in going, actually, now's the time when we do the Lord's Supper to go, how am I going with God? Actually, I think there's some things in my heart that I do need to address, that I do need to fess up to God, that... I've actually been ignoring him, that I've actually been trusting other things. I've actually been trusting my money or pursuing other dreams that doesn't involve God. It's all about me and my world and my life, and I've actually put God on the back shelf. It's actually the Lord's Supper. How are you going now? Is a question about is there something you need to talk to God about? You know, confession is a freeing thing. One of the scary things about confessing, though, is rejection. You know, if we were to say, sorry, look, I really screwed up, I've done this, are they going to be my friend anymore? Are they going to trust me? But yet confessing to God, he says, I will show mercy. I will show love. I've done it before. I've guaranteed it. But you need to come to me. You need to clear the slate. You need to confess. This other word we use, repent, is like saying, Lord, I'm bringing this to you. I, I want to turn around. I don't want to do that anymore. The Lord's Supper is a good time to fall at God's feet and do that. It's also looking forward. Uh, so look back, 
now look forward. Are you living in anticipation of Jesus' return? The Lord's Supper is an instruction for us, like God instructed the Jews, do it every year. We're instructed to do it more regularly than that, to remember Jesus will return. Because it's easy through our adventures in life to to get disillusioned, to get caught up in the world's troubles, that we actually start to doubt and we start to wander. But God's saying, no, I've guaranteed it. I'm telling you, there will be a time you will be sitting down with Jesus and it'll be the wedding banquet and you'll be there. If you trust in him, follow him, fall at his feet, you'll be there. Look forward and long for that day. Somebody explained to me, because I was a bit puzzled about the whole, why do we have such small cups and small bits of bread it's like why don't we make a meal of it and somebody suggested to me well it's actually meant to be just a taste of heaven it's not meant to be a heaven you don't need a big banquet that's waiting for you but actually this is just a taste a teaser in a sense that makes you long for that better meal long for that wedding banquet and i it's actually changed my approach to it it's like actually i do wish the juice tasted better i've got to confess that's not much of a taster to want something uh more of it but it, it's actually i want the real stuff in jesus i want to be there are you on that journey putting your hope in christ putting your trust in him i will be there on that day this is why we do it to remind ourselves i'm going to invite you now to participate Just like they were participating and eating the lamb, just as Jesus broke the bread and shared the bread and said, eat, like you're a part of this. You're feasting on it. That's a sign that you're you're saying, I'm in. I'm trusting in Jesus. I want to put my hope in him. It's trusting him. Now, when we do this, we realise It's for believers. It's not a meal that we put on for the whole community. It's for believers. So if you're a believer here today, it doesn't matter if you're a member of Southside or not a member of Southside. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to say, today's the day I'm going to look back and remember his great love for me. I'm going to confess my sins now between me and God, knowing that he will forgive me. He will show me mercy and love. And I'm going today to start living for eternity with him. I invite you uh, in a few moments to come forward and grab a cup. What we do is uh, we actually ask people to leave their seats because it's actually a decision we want you to make. It's actually an active thing. If, uh, if anybody needs help with you know, mobility, you might ask somebody around you if they need some help, serve them. But we actually want you to say, hey, today's the day, the line in the sand moment where I want to get serious with Christ, to come forward, take the cup. Then we're going to sit and just hang on to it for a moment. Maybe reflect, maybe use that time as an opportunity to confess your sin. And then when we've all got our cup of juice and the wafer, we're going to eat and drink together because that's symbolic too. We do this together. We're a people of God. We're a family. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray now. And then invite you. Dear Father God, we just thank you for your great love for us. Lord, on this journey of some thousands of years that we've done this morning, we thank you that you've always been faithful to your people. You've always uh, showed them grace and love and mercy. And Lord, thank you for that assurance when we come before you today that you welcome us with open arms. Lord, help us to realise that We fall way short of your expectations of us. We often ignore you. We pursue other things. Our heart is set on things that lead us away from you, not leading us to you. So, Lord, 
we want to confess to you this morning that we make a mess all the time. But Lord, we thank you for the victory of Jesus, that through your love and mercy and his death for us, the blood he shed, that when I fall at your feet, that I also share in the victory of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the grave, that we can have assurance that we will rise from the grave. When Jesus sits beside you, that we will also sit beside you. When Jesus talks about this wedding banquet, we will be there too in eternity. Lord, help us strive for that, long for that day. We say, come Lord Jesus, come take us to that day. So Lord, as we eat this supper together now, we do pray that you'd help us to, to really draw near to you, to use this as an opportunity, as a landmark moment. Today's the day. I want to get serious with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.